You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I cannot hold back my excitement about beginning chapter 1 of Romans. And Lord willing, if we can just get the first chapter done before Thanksgiving, I'll consider it an immense win. Uh, This is a loaded book. But this is Romans part 1, and I've entitled it, How Far Away Is the Storm? How Far Away is the Storm? I remember learning in grade school that you can figure out how far you are away from a storm by watching the lightning, and anybody remember? Listening for the thunder, right? A bolt of lightning as it streaks across the sky heats the air along its path, rapidly expanding the air. The thunder is the sound of of the rapid expansion. And here's the deal, and you know how this works. Light travels faster than sound. So the light of the lightning and the sound of the thunder actually occur at the same time. But because of the way it travels, we see it first and then we hear it. And here's what they teach you, I don't know if you remember it. For every five seconds between the flash of the lightning... And the sound of the thunder, the storm, is one mile away. But they occur at the same time. In 2013, the Barna Group reported a nationwide study of a representative sample of 718 self-identifying Christians asked to respond to 20 statements. There were 10 statements of Christ-like beliefs, such as this. In recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider following Christ, and I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. It also included statements of self-righteous beliefs, such as, it's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. And I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. Researchers found only one in seven Christians held all ten Christ-like beliefs. Yet one in two Christians tended to have some attitudes and actions that are, quote, characterized by self-righteousness. It seems like that report and many others indicate that for many who call themselves Christians, there is much disparity. There is much space, if you will, many miles between their faith in Jesus and their obedience to Jesus. Their faith in Jesus and their obedience to Jesus. Today we've come to study one of the most important letters in all of human history. And this letter was almost never written. 
the Apostle Paul who penned this letter longed to go to the church in Rome and preach in person. However, Paul was delayed. Lucky for us. So he took up his pen to address a congregation of Jewish and Gentile Christians whom he had never met. Now just imagine, for, for example, and I'm not saying I'm the be-all, end-all to preaching, but I know how some congregations act when they have the substitute preacher. We find out, oh, Josh ain't going to be here today? Well, why should we listen to that guy? And so what the Apostle Paul's main concern here in the first couple of verses of this book is he wants to introduce himself and establish his credentials for addressing a congregation of Christians that's never met him. He wants to give you a reason why you should listen to him. Very practical. So let's read Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is a very uh, normal greeting at the time, but notice how Paul describes himself. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul gives us three credentials in just this first verse, and these three credentials help establish why the church in Rome, and I would say this, the church across the ages, you gathered here today, why should we lean in to hear what the Apostle Paul has written in the book of Romans. The very first thing that he describes himself, and you can write this down in your notes or in your Bible app, is he is a slave of Jesus. He is a slave of Jesus. A more literal rendering of the Greek term servant, doulos, is slave. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, for the Jewish Christians in Paul's audience... This may have been an impressive title, to be a slave or servant of the Lord. If you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, which are the Old Testament Scriptures, slaves or servants of the Lord were essentially biblical superstars. They included Moses, Joshua, Jonah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were all called in the Old Testament slaves or servants of the Lord. So the title in some sense is imbued with great honor. At the same time, what did I just tell you? The congregation was made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now the Gentile Christians would have had a different uh, connotation to the word doulos or slave. For Roman Christians, especially slaves which there were six million in the Roman Empire and constituted a great part of the church, the title connotated humility and submission. Now think about this. Slaves were powerless. No one listened to a slave. So where does Paul get his power? What gives Paul the right a slave, to speak into the life of this Roman church. Well, it all depends on who you're a slave of. Look at this next part. He says he is an apostle. Number two, he is an apostle of Jesus. 
Number two, he is an apostle of Jesus. The word apostle robbed of its context. If we just see the word apostello in the Greek, it just simply means sent one. Someone who is sent. Maybe we could say someone sent on a mission. And it's like our idea today of a missionary, but with one significant difference between Paul's missionary efforts and our missionary efforts today. Two of the primary functions of the apostolic office, the sent one's office, the missionary's office during Paul's day, was one, to plant churches, which missionaries do today, and then two, preside over churches. Preside over churches. It was Paul's responsibility to establish churches everywhere he went, and it was also his responsibility to govern those churches, what happens inside those churches. Unlike missionaries today who may be empowered with ecclesiastical authority, a church may tell them you have the right to govern. Here's the difference when Paul calls himself an apostle. He means this, he has the divine authority to dictate what happens in your church. Now that's a pretty strong claim. Paul's saying, I've never met you, but because Jesus has called me as an apostle, what I'm about to share with you is literally gospel for your church. Ladies and gentlemen, can we just pause a moment and applaud to this? We're not reading the bright ideas of some Pharisee turned missionary sometime between AD 30 and AD 35. What we are reading is this, Jesus Christ speaking through Paul to his church. So when you look at the book of Romans, even from Romans chapter 1, we are getting a word from God himself. That's what it means to be an apostle. The very third thing that Paul gives us his credential is he is set apart for Jesus. He is set apart for Jesus. Set apart simply means to be wholly dedicated or wholly devoted to a purpose. Paul is saying that his life's mission is the proclamation of the gospel of God. I have been put on this earth for one thing, to proclaim the gospel. And as a consequence of that, he will plant and establish churches and govern and preside over them, not to abuse authority, but to defend false teaching and proclaim the gospel. The gospel, what does the word gospel mean? If you take it out of its context and just look at it, the gospel, uh, the word alone, it simply means good news. We've got good news, all right? Church, I need you to catch this. This is something important for our day. It's good news and not good views. A gospel preacher here is not here to proclaim how you can become a better person. I'm not here to proclaim how you can become more moral or more politically conservative. A gospel preacher preaches not about what, but about who. It's the gospel of who? God, and we see this in Jesus. We're here to proclaim a person to you, to invite every single one of you into a personal relationship with Jesus, and that is good news. Write this down. The gospel is the good news about God's salvation plan for people dead in sin. 
And we're going to see this unveiled real quickly in the book of Romans, is that every single one of us have sinned against a holy God, and we deserve God's wrath and judgment and hell. It's the absolute gospel truth. You said, that, Josh, that sounds like a lot of bad news. You're absolutely correct. But sometimes we have to hear the bad news before we can hear the good news. The good news is this. In Christ, God intervened in human history to save us from our sins and the penalty and punishment of it. That's good news, church. You're like, kind of, maybe. I don't know. I think I'll take the wrath of God. Why would we sit and live another moment and breathe another breath with the wrath of God hanging over us? When there's good news, you can be free from it. And Paul says, this is my life's mission to tell you about it. I'm here to help you escape the wrath to come. The gospel, this is important, it did not begin with Paul. It wasn't invented by man. It's as old as God himself. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Which he, God, promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets refer to the Old Testament. If you examine all of Paul's references in the book of Romans to the Old Testament, you'll see this. Paul found the gospel foreshadowed in Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, and Habakkuk. He gives explicit references of the Old Testament to how they point to the gospel. Church, I've told it to you before and I'll tell it to you again. The whole Bible leads to Jesus. The whole Bible. If you're wondering, if you're new to church or new to Christianity, what is this book about? One person, Jesus, from beginning to end. And if you read it and don't arrive at Jesus, you read it wrong. Go back again. Try again. It is there to lead us to the gospel of Jesus. Notice what Romans 3 says. The gospel, which was promised, verse 3, concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is meant, all of this has been God's plan to get you and me to Jesus. Now here's the big question we're going to spend the remainder of our time answering. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus and what makes him Christ? What makes him the Christ? Notice so far in verse 1, Paul says he is a servant of, what does it say? Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. In verse 3, concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. Christ is a title. It's not a first or a last name. It comes from the Greek word anointed, and in this context it means the anointed one. It is the functional equivalent of the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament term Messiah. When the Bible says Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, it is saying Jesus is the anointed one. He is the anointed king. He is the chosen one who will come to bring about our redemption and judgment. It goes hand in hand. Salvation and judgment. What makes him so unique? What qualifies a man, Jesus of Nazareth, to be considered and called the Christ, the King, 
the chosen one. What's so special about him that we preach him from our pulpits? Look at the next part in verse 3. Who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. Write this down. Now, I'm going to use a term I made up, and then I'll explain it to you. All right? Number one, Jesus was king elect. Jesus was king elect. And I'll explain that in just a moment. The Jewish Christians in Paul's Roman audience would have appreciated that Paul highlights this verse. According to the prophets, according to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a biological requirement in order to be the king or the chosen one or the Messiah. This person must be a descendant of Israel's king, David. We call it in theology the Davidic covenant. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. You just might want to write that reference down. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. I'm going to read it to you. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking through his prophets to David. And here is the promise to King David. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, that's a very theological way of saying when you die, all right? Ah, God, will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. Notice the biological requirement. And I will establish his kingdom. So far, nothing special there, but listen to the next part. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did you catch that? Forever. This king of David will be on the throne of God in the house of God forever. Now, if you follow the sequence of all of David's descendants, what did every single descendant of David do? Died. No, no king of Israel has sat on the throne of Israel forever. What about God's promise? What about God's promise? And what does it have to do with Jesus? Now, here's amazing, something amazing. This requirement was fulfilled at Jesus' incarnation and at his birth. Y'all, it's at Christmas time. I just got to throw that in there to you. Jesus biologically came from his mother, Mary, and Mary happened to be a descendant of who? David. Well, in a patriarchal society, in order to have legal status, you also have to have the father's ancestry. Well, we know God is Jesus' father. And this is so important in the book of Matthew that Joseph doesn't put Mary away, but Joseph, in fact, adopts Jesus. Well, wouldn't you know, Joseph's also a descendant of David. So Jesus is not only biologically a descendant of David, but he also has the legal right to claim, I can be king. I can be king. Now, here's what I want you to think about. And I called it king-elect. I know that doesn't work back in old times, but it works for us. We have a president-elect in the United States. That's what we call them. And what happens? The president-elect of the United States is the person who has won the presidential election but has not been inaugurated as president. He or she has not come into power. 
right? So he, they've won it outright. They have to wait to inauguration day to be vested with executive power. Here's what I want you to catch. Jesus was king from birth. The question becomes, when did he become inaugurated? When did he become the one that in him, only in Jesus, can humanity find redemption and salvation? Look at the next verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness. And here's how. How do we know? By the resurrection of the dead. Church, this is good. Just as there was a biological requirement, there was also a spiritual requirement in order to be the king or the chosen one. According to Isaiah 53, the chosen one must live a sinless, righteous, perfect life and lay it down as a ransom for the many. If he did, God would prolong his days so that he might see the fruit of his labor. This is how we know about Jesus. Jesus walked up Mount Calvary. There he bled and died for our sins and with God's wrath against our sins satisfied with the payment of Jesus' shed blood and death, the Spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit himself raised Jesus from the dead and God gave him a name above every name. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Write this down. Jesus is now king. Jesus is now king. Church, he's already been inaugurated. He's already took the oath of office. He sits at the right hand of God, ready to hear our thoughts and whispers. And my Bible teaches me he's coming back one day so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We only have this day to get right with Jesus and experience his salvation because the powerful Son of God will return and judge the world with righteousness. This is the Jesus we proclaim. He is sweet, oh, but he's strong. Listen to how Peter proclaimed him in Acts 4.12. Write it down, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. If you long to have your sins forgiven, your shame removed, to experience eternal life in heaven with Christ and God, I need you to understand this. God has, when he inaugurated Jesus by raising him from the dead, he says, it's only through Jesus that I'll allow a relationship with me. Why? Because only Jesus loves you and paid your sin debt for you. It's only Jesus. So if you're looking today for a relationship with God, you need to become acquainted with King Jesus. And he's not dead. He's alive. He can hear you. He's here with us now. The other part I need you to see, though, is Acts 17.31. This is from a sermon from Paul. Acts 17.31. This is talking about God because God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Well, how did he appoint somebody? Listen to this. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection serves as proof and vindication that Jesus alone 
can give you salvation and that Jesus alone will judge you. That's why the gospel is wrapped up in one person. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to King Jesus? That's the question. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our Savior and our God. Let's look at the rest of the verses. Romans 5 through, 1, 5 through 7. Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, the, he's talking about the apostles have received the grace to be an apostle. And notice their mission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the Gentiles, among all those who are far from God, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's greeting. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, even that greeting is loaded. And unless you're going to let me preach to 2 o'clock, I'm just going to pick one thing to talk about. We'll revisit those themes, those terms, are mentioned over and over again through the book of Romans. But I want to focus on one phrase. What is the response to Paul's apostolic mission? If Paul carried out his life, life's mission successfully, what would have occurred in all the Gentile territories and, and Gentile churches? And it's wrapped up in this phrase, and it's actually a very difficult phrase to really grasp perfectly, but the obedience of faith. He's after the obedience of faith. Now, you and I wouldn't, has anybody ever said the obedience of faith? Have you ever had a conversation about the obedience of faith? No. It's a weird way of saying something. The idea is this faith's obedience or believing obedience. This includes two dynamics. One is obedience that consists in faith. We say it this way we want you to accept the gospel. We want you to trust in Jesus for salvation. That's one half of what obedience of the faith is. We want you to obey in faith, so to speak. Trust Jesus for salvation, your personal Savior in God. But the second dynamic is also important. Faith expresses itself in obedience. Obeying Jesus depends not on our moral resolve, but on the strength that He gives us. We rely on Jesus, we trust in Jesus in order to obey the words of Jesus. We need Jesus' help to become the people that Jesus longs for us to be. So it's both and, not either or. The Apostle Paul, he would say to you, I want you today to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want you to believe in Him and trust that it is good for you to have a relationship with Him. But then also this, it's not just about a one-time decision. He's also saying, 
Jesus is also after your obedience. Church, think about this. If we raise our hands and we claim, we believe that Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He has all authority and power, every right in the world to tell us what to do, and then we don't obey Him. Do you really have faith in Him? No. You think it's good that people have faith in them? I'm saying is this, do you believe it's good that you trust in them? And the way we find out is what? If you'll obey them. It's obedience and faith working together to create a new person in Christ. Theologian Karl Barth put it this way, faith is not obedience, but faith is not faith Without obedience, they belong together, as do thunder and lightning in a thunderstorm. What happens when lightning and thunder strike? It happens at the same time. Here's what I want you to think about. If the storm is a life of faith and obedience to Jesus, you have to ask yourself, where is the lightning and what? Where is the thunder? It's both and. Many people sit there and they say, well, I've got the thunder. Look at my life. I'm moral, moral, moral. I'm a good person. I'm religious. Where is the faith? We must trust Jesus for salvation and rely upon him to work in and through us to become the kind of people Christ longs for us to be. And then if all you say is you have faith and there's no thunder, you've deceived yourself. Because they both happen at the same time. We're here to advance your personal faith, and we're here to advance your personal obedience to King Jesus. So what? Write this down. Trust and obey Jesus. Trust and obey Jesus. If you read the book of Romans, or you read any Pauline letter, and you come away without understanding and doing, trusting and obeying Jesus, you miss it. My whole life's mission is to get people to trust and obey Jesus. That's it. And the question for you is, are you trusting and obeying Jesus? I want to show you how important this theme is. And I want to close with the closing of the end of Romans. Can I just pray this over you? And then we'll have our altar call in just a second. This is what Romans 16, 25 through 27 says. This is the end, the last verses of the book of Romans. He says this, Now to him, to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God, to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory forever. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.